I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, Whit, where are you from? We've never talked about that on this show. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, is this, we're doing a sarcasm episode? Is that what's happening now? No, that's next week. Um, so you're from Kansas City, as our listeners have heard approximately 10 million times. Uh, I'm from a bunch of different places. You live in Kansas City. I live in Minneapolis. And we talk about those places a lot. And we're really a Midwestern show. And still, somehow, somehow we have never done an episode focused on the greatest Midwestern city. I feel like we've talked about Kansas City. You just said we talk about Kansas City. I do my best to, to talk about Kansas okay. City. Okay, okay. So we've never done a Chicago episode. Oh... You're pulling a fast. At least you're not saying that we have to do a St. Louis episode. That I would not do. But a Chicago episode, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say it's the greatest Midwestern city, but I'm going to say it's a very important Midwestern city. The delusion, <laughs> the delusion episode will be the week after the after the sarcasm <laughs> episode. There'll be the delusion episode. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't done an episode about Chicago yet. That is surprising to me. It's a travesty. It is a travesty. I go there all the time, and I'm always absolutely blown away by what a great place it is. So today, we're going to talk about what it means to write about Chicago and the incredible tradition of literature that comes from there. And for that conversation, we're pleased to be joined by award-winning poet Taylor Bias. Dr. Taylor Bias is a Black Chicago native currently living in Cincinnati, Ohio, where she is an assistant features editor for The Rumpus, an acquisitions poetry editor for Variant Literature, a member of the Beloit Poetry Journal Editorial Board, and a 2023-24 National Book Critics Circle Emerging Fellow. She is the first place winner of the 2020 Poetry Superhighway, the 2020 Frontier Poetry Award for the New Poets Contest, and the 2021 Adrian Rich Poetry Prize. 
She's the author of two poetry chapbooks in her debut full-length collection, I Done Clicked My Heels Three Times from Soft Skull Press, won the 2023 Maya Angelou Book Award. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, the Maya Angelou Book Award is close to home since it's sponsored by the Kansas City Public Library and six universities here in Missouri, where I live. So we're, we were thrilled that you were chosen by our uh, finalist judge, Randall Mann, and our readings committee. So that was great. Um, but you're from Chicago, not Missouri, and you're, you identify, you know, as a Chicago writer. And some of the most famous American writers that I've grown up reading, you know, uh, are writers who write about Chicago. Richard Wright, Saul Bellow, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lorraine Hansberry, Upton Sinclair, Nelson Algren, Stuart Dybeck, Sandra Cisneros, just to name a few. Um, contemporary black poets like Nate Marshall, Eve Ewing, Patricia Smith, and of course, you. Um, given that list of names, it seems to me like Chicago writers have been among the most like politically active and radical writers in the American literary tradition. I wonder if you think that's true. And is there something about the city and its politics that makes writers from Chicago that way? I think that is true. And I, I think there is something about the city that definitely contributes to that. Um, you know, Chicago is, is still, I believe, the most segregated metropolitan area um, in America. And so I know for me, there's there's a very particular experience of, of being a person of color um, and growing up in a place that's extremely segregated, which for me means you're growing up in a community um, of people that for the most part look like you and, and, and are going through the same things that you're going through. Um, and there is a particular comfort um, with that. And then I think over time, there's the, the dissonance of the, the safety and comfort of growing up in the community of, of your people, and then realizing kind of what comes with that, right? Um, which is ultimately, right, systemic and systematic structural racism, um, lack of resources, um, you know, militarized police, those sorts of things. And so I think there's this very interesting juxtaposition of the very early experience of of being in a community of, of people like yourself and then over time kind of realizing um, that the sort of segregation of the city um, kind of comes with comes with a lot more that is that is not as joyful and not as comforting as maybe those earlier experiences. So I think there's a, a, a shift that kind of always happens and maybe at different times for people. Um, I know for me in particular, I played volleyball when I was younger and one of the things that I used to remember was traveling to other schools, particularly on the north side of Chicago, and being struck by the difference um, between our schools and um, realizing how like more technologically advanced and how much you know more funding it was obvious that these sorts of schools had. Um, and so you have experiences like those where you realize the, the intense segregation of the city um, ultimately hurts you, um, maybe in ways that you don't realize until you kind of are forced to encounter those other parts of the city in, in particular ways. Um, I think on the other hand, Chicago just has a, a very rich history. Um, you mentioned, you know, evaluating, I'm thinking about 1919. Um, of course, we have Chicago being one of the, the cities where a lot of people settled during the Great Migration. Um, I think Chicago is just really ripe with um, a lot of complicated history and, and coupled with the, the personal experience of of growing up in your community and then um, realizing that it's not as, as sweet as it maybe seems when you're younger. Um, I think both of those things kind of together are really conducive to a lot of political writing, for sure. 
That's interesting because some of what you're talking about sort of suggests a particular kind of coming of age story. And of course, not all of the literature coming out of Chicago is that. But yeah, the transition that you're describing, um, yeah, suggests a kind of very particular way that coming of age might might play a role in um, in literature about and for people from Chicago. And I guess its geographic location has made it this place of, yeah, like great interchange, um, a place that people come to and spend key periods of their life. I mean, some of the writers that we mentioned above, you know, like they weren't necessarily born in Chicago, but maybe arrived there and spent formative periods of their lives there and then, you know, moved on or... Uh, and then they also wrote in very specific ways, in, in a way that you do as well, also about specific neighborhoods. Um, it seems to me like Chicago literature foregrounds, right, of course, black life, but also particularly working class life um, and particular ethnic communities. And there's all sorts of overlap between those categories, which are imperfect and intersectional. But I'm thinking of, you know, Wright's Native Son, Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, which I remember reading in high school and being so blown away by. It's like one of often, often the only play a kid reads in school <laughs> yeah, is A Raisin yeah. in the Sun, right? <laughs> um, like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, Sandra Cisneros' The House on Mango Street. And there's just a few examples. Um, the categories that I'm describing, Black life, working class life, and and the life of ethnic communities, those exist across American literature. But Chicago's contribution in all three of those categories, I think, is really distinctive. And I'm curious about why that literature has had such a great impact on us. And and if I'm missing other ways we might um, think about those contributions, am I missing any categories that we should be thinking about? Oh, I mean, I think there are a lot of categories that we should be thinking about. But I, I do want to focus on the, the sort of Black ethnic and working class literature that you're talking about. Um when when you when you say that what comes to mind and I think this is something I didn't really maybe think of Chicago in a way until I, I left and we can talk about that in a little bit, but I think in a lot of ways a lot of what happens in Chicago or I think a lot of the literature that I read about Chicago can often serve as I think something symbolic or metaphorical of, of kind of what happens I think on a larger scale. Um, in America and, and maybe oftentimes globally, right? I think Chicago is very particular. Um, its politics are, are so particular. And again, its its segregation is so particular that I think the narratives that come out of that often offer this very magnified, um, but also very personal version of, I think, what happens on this much larger scale. And so when we come to those texts, I think we we often get these much larger lessons of history, maybe, along with these these really personal narratives. And, and so I think about the impact of, of these works in school, for example, or like, you know, some of the school conversations that I had about A Raisin in the Sun. Um, and a lot of what we talked about was like this larger umbrella of the American dream, for example, this, this story about Chicago would then became something that stood in for this this larger um, understanding of how people were trying to survive and, and make it in America. And um, I think going back to that experience of learning over time, kind of what it means to be in a very segregated place as a person of color, and then having to go outside of that community to then realize what that really means. Um, I think that coming of age narrative is very universal for a lot of people. I think the Chicago politics allow for very particular narratives to be written about that. But I think 
it happens on different scales and in different ways everywhere. And there's something about, I think, the narrative that comes out of Chicago that a lot of people of color all over the world can really relate to. Um, so ultimately, I think there's a universality um, in those narratives that I think serve really well when, you know, putting them in curriculum um, or just having larger conversations about people of color's experiences in America and what it's like to, um, you know, those narratives of like when you first realize that you're black, for example, or those narratives when you first realize that racism exists when it happens to you. Um, those stories of Chicago, I think, are really um, provide just a, um, I think, an easy space for us to talk about those sorts of narratives because of the the environment, because of the segregation, because of its politics and its corruption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that's kind of what happens um, in, in why those contributions from Chicago are so distinct. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. I was thinking when you were talking about the siloed nature of, you know, life in the neighborhood that you grew up in, and Kansas City is very racially segregated as well, which is something that I have written about. But it also does, it doesn't have, for instance, like Polish American neighborhoods, you know, which is what Stuart Dybeck writes about. And I wonder if maybe that's part of it, that, that there is this like very strong neighborhood borders, not just in between blacks and whites, but between different ethnicities in the white community. Um, is that is that true of Chicago? Is, are those boundaries still hold? Yeah, I, I think, you know, in addition to those racial divides, there are also very intense class divides as well. Um, so mm -hmm. you also have those very distinct divisions. Um, and then we also have neighborhoods that are like heavily Hispanic, for example. So right. we, I think there's also um, a multitude, right, of, of separations, not just the, the line between black and white that we often think about. Um, but for for example, like Jose Oliveira's Promises of Gold, who um, I've had the pleasure of hearing him read from quite um, often recently, um, I think about his work a lot in, in his discussions about right the the Latin experience, right? For example, in Chicago, the Hispanic experience, and um, I, I also think about the ways that those intersections maybe don't exist as prominently in other places. So there are just, I think, even more layers to all the ways that we are mixing or not mixing, um, all the ways that our cultural, our cultures are, are so kind of insulated, isolated, um, in all the ways that I think those experiences then as we write about them, um, we realize that they're also very similar, even though they're mm -hmm. so separate, right? Um, and so I think there's a, a really interesting way that all the literature that comes out of Chicago in that way, and then you kind of encounter it and realize that we're, we're experiencing a lot of the same things in these very separate pockets that we're in, which I think is a really interesting um, experience to have as I am reading other people that are also from Chicago and that have also been in their own, you know, own, own cities and communities and, and versions of that experience. It occurs to me, I used to live in Michigan, and some of what we're talking about also applies to Detroit. But I do think that Chicago kind of has something that like literary, I mean, probably several literary things that that Detroit doesn't have. But the one that's occurring to me in particular is the way that like Chicago literature, we're talking here largely about literary fiction, um, I don't know, classics, etc. But Chicago also has a very particular relationship with genre mm. and American myth. And like, right, the way that that 
um, crime and the mob are mythologized in Chicago. And I mean, you you write a little bit about the ways that people perceive of Chicago and its relationship to crime in some of your poems. But I mean, I'm curious about. And you have she has an epigraph from Carl Sandburg writing about crime also, you know, in, in one yeah, of the poems. And- so I noticed that you were at least observant of that tradition there connecting to it. Yeah, I wonder if um, like, does that does that also seem to you like a way does does Chicago like Chicago noir or like Chicago <laughs> mob literature or like kind of the the like kind of myth of Chicago and crime, which is something that you seem interested in piercing. Mm-hmm. It's um, can you talk a little about that? That's the oh, I'm thinking of the the Chirac, yeah, which, the Ch- which Chirac we're going to ask you to read a little bit later in the show. Yeah. Okay. Um, interestingly enough. Um, and I think a lot of this just has to do with growing up around something and it being normalized and you not, I think, seeing the the strangeness of it or maybe not even the strangeness, but just um, how how much of a life that it has until you leave the place. Right. For example, I when I was younger, there was a place called Dillinger's that um, me and my dad would go to all the time to eat and in the in the this little small food place there's like this white cast of John Dillinger's face in there like there's there's like all these pictures on the wall and all these news clippings and these are things that I just saw all the time never really paid attention to um never really um like thought twice about these things um and then it wasn't something that I became interested in until I moved away from Chicago and I was constantly encountering people who had these ideas about me and who I was when I would tell them that I was from the South side of Chicago. And the first thing that people go to is like thug is, you know, mobs or some, something of that nature. Um, and then eventually I uh, was interested in writing an essay about my father um, in the ways that I, I think Chicago itself kind of maybe, you know, played some small part in, in his life and, and ultimately how he, um, has changed over time and his alcoholism. And then as I was like researching Chicago and the place that he used to work, then I was getting into all of this stuff about the, you know, the crime literature and that sort of thing. And so it's like, it wasn't until I was removed from the thing that I, that I started to realize that, oh, this is, this is something that other people outside of, of Chicago have this, this very strange obsession about, or they have these certain ideas about, um, and I think ultimately the project of writing about Chicago wasn't one that I could really um, fully be invested in until I left also, um, until I was able to be distant from it in a way and see it anew, too. Um, so, yeah, I think it was leaving Chicago that really, um, not to be cliche, but put things into perspective <laughs> for me. I just wanted to bring up this one other theme that we haven't mentioned yet, which is that Chicago is a Midwestern city. I mean, Suki and I both live in Midwestern cities, but Chicago is the biggest Midwestern city, you know, and it matters, I think. I don't think personally that Obama would have been elected if he had been from New York or California. Like he got people to vote for him because he was from the Midwest in a certain extent. And I wonder to what extent you think, I mean, and you can think of like the meatpacking industry, which appears in Sinclair's The Jungle, you know, like that's a Midwestern industry, right? Um, I wonder to what extent do you think of Chicago as a Midwestern city and how does that make it distinctive? Hmm. It's so, it's so. Or maybe you don't. Yeah. I, maybe I think of it that way and that's not how you think of it. I'm... It's so interesting. Um, 
I think because, you know, as I, I would say about halfway through my life, we, we kind of moved more squarely out into the south suburbs of Chicago. And then, and then so I think for half of my life, there has been um, this personal distinction between the Chicago in the city that I grew up in and then the Chicago that was then that I didn't have to drive into because I had moved out into the south suburbs. And and then I, I think in that way, Chicago became, in my mind, very like city-like in the way that New York is very city-like in my mind because I was in the suburbs. And so I think for me, the suburbs kind of became the Midwestern um, ideal in my mind. And then Chicago became something separate because of ultimately how we sort of moved as a family. Um, but then, you know, I, you know, I go to, you live in Birmingham for six years and then that distinction, right, between Birmingham and Chicago, then I'm like, okay, well, I think Chicago is very Midwestern in the way that um, I think, like, there's a very particular Midwestern, like, niceness, you know, those sorts of things, those Midwestern interactions, like, I think all those things exist in Chicago. But it's interesting, every time I move my, I think, relationship with mid the midwest and what the midwest kind of means to me changes now in cincinnati it's so interesting because cincinnati's also like right you know just a bridge away from kentucky for example and so it's kind of right on the edge um and i always talk to my friends about how there's like this there's this midwestern niceness but then there's also like a a southern hospitality like there's this odd mixture and so every time i move my my kind of understanding of of Midwest and in kind of what it entails changed. And I think that was true of, of Chicago for me as I moved away from it. I think in my mind it became something separate because then it was something that I had to, you know, make this effort to get into. Um, and then it felt like this separate experience from where I lived. Um, so so I, I think, I think in some ways, yes. And then in some ways it feels very much big city and in the same way that like, you know, New York inspires awe in people who have not, you know, been to those cities or who don't live in those places. So before you moved out to the suburbs, you know, we've been talking about Chicago generally, but we want to hear about your particular Chicago and, you know, you're part of this black literary tradition that we were describing earlier, but also specifically the South side, you know, your book is, is, um, engaging that neighborhood in particular. Can you talk to us a little bit about before you moved out to the suburbs and how you began to, how you thought about Chicago when you were living in that place that you later mythologized a little? Yeah, the South Side of Chicago, I mean, it was just probably one of the the tightest, tightest knit communities that I'd ever been in. Very much, you know, kind of like, Everyone knows each other, you know, the neighbors, your neighbors are, you look out for each other. Um, I felt very safe in a lot of ways in that community, even though we were, you know, close to violence in some ways. You know, there's a poem in this book about a bullet coming through our window, which absolutely did happen and, and was very much the impetus for us, you know, wanting to, to move. Um, but there was there were so many ways that I think just that sort of community of, of everyone looks out for each other, everyone cares for each other. Um, that was really special to me. And um, the south side of Chicago is also, I think, where me and my father were the closest as well. Um, and so I, I also hold just very tender feelings for it just because of, of that um, and just the memory of me, my mom, and my dad kind of making the best out of what we had. 
And I think there is also something very cultural about that, just making the best out of what you have in the in the intimacy, I think that comes with that, um, both in your nuclear family and in a, in a larger community and the ways that you have to kind of um, be there for one another. And so I think the South Side was that for me. Um, it was this very sacred place in which, you know, me and everyone there, we just kind of all held each other up in, in the ways that we could. And um, and so, of course, as we moved out to the suburbs, um, our communities got, you know, more diverse. When I went to high school, um, my experience was switched. And, you know, I was in going to school kind of closer to Chicago and, and those experiences were more diverse. And then I moved out to Olympia Fields, went to a Catholic high school. And then I was in suddenly I was in a predominantly white <laughs> um, school system as well. And, and so those experiences were just drastically different. Those communities were very different. I mean, I was lucky to live in a a small community where a lot of my neighbors were black. And so we were still very close, but the community aspect just looked very, very different than what it did when I, when I lived in the South side. And so I think when I think about the South side in particular and the ways that my life changed when I move away from it, one of the things, I think the biggest thing that I, um, hold dear is just the community aspect and the intimacy of of what that looked like. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So the collection is actually dedicated to the south side of Chicago. It's a, it's a lovely dedication and you have this sequence of poems about it that you've alluded to and there's seven sections for in the collection and there's one south side poem in each section and i wonder if you could talk to us about the arc of those poems and and read read one for us maybe the first one yeah absolutely yeah so the south side sonnet crown um which was originally you know just written together as one crown all the sonnets together um as we were in the later stages of editing the book and trying to think about the, the arc of the book. Um, I think the South Side Sonic Crown already kind of had a built-in arc already. And we said, well, what if we just broke these up throughout the book and we allowed each of those sonnets to be an anchor, right, for the reader that, that kind of brings brings us back to the South Side. And that ended up working really well for us. Um, and so I will go ahead and read the first South Side Crown that opens the collection. South Side 1. This is what teaches me love. Your streets, their wailing for their dead. The way a siren becomes a mother too. How my parents hold me like some frail thing to their chests at night. How quick they are to cover my ears when the block gets hot. The handshake half hug sacred enough to make a man feel whole again. The shape shifting. How what looks like a thug in darkness softens into a boy in the gold glow of a bedside lamp. How we are all somebody's grandbaby. Harold's chicken steeped in so much hot sauce, the nose runs. And the small piece of bread too wet to hold, drowning beneath the fries. Each of our brownstones, side by side. So there's nowhere to run, nowhere for us to cry. Thank you very much. 
We were talking a little bit about the tradition of Chicago writing, and your book opens with an epigraph from uh, Patricia Smith's poem, The Awakening, which reads, and she has a name for the moan that worries gently in her hair. It is called Chicago. Um, and another poem is after a photograph taken by Gordon Parks in Chicago. I wonder if you could talk about that literary history and tradition that you're working out of and other black writers and artists from that city. Yeah, the thing I... I love about Patricia Smith and that epigraph in particular and Gordon Park's work um, are the ways that they seem dedicated to um, injecting life into Chicago, right? There's like the, the she is called Chicago um, and there's the, the Gordon Park's photographs that I think, I think he writes something about seeking to, to show the black um, Black intellectual and kind of all versions of, of life, right? The Negro and his intellectual, professional, educational, social, farm, and urban life. Not one strata of society, but rather a record showing all sides of the life of our people. There's there's that mission of his photography that I felt um, were in alignment with, I think, the project of my book. Um, I, I see this book also in conversation with people like Nate Marshall, whose book, you know, The Wild Hundreds is also called A Love Letter, Right to Chicago. And I think um, my book is also my own version of this love letter to Chicago. Um, there's this, I, I think there was like a mission for me um, in writing this book. I wanted, I wanted Chicago not to be not to be the the kind of thing that people are told that it is, um, but I, I wanted it to be a character in this story, a character that played a vital role in in raising me, essentially. Like it's kind of kind of a parent in a lot of ways and in the ways that it, it kind of, you know, helped me to be who I am. Um and I, I think Chicago has a personality. I th- I think it's it's complicated um in ways that I think um are often lost in particular because of how the media talks about it and 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 you know how other people perceive it but I think it it becomes a kind of person and a character in the book and I think other works where I see that happening or other works that I see prioritizing um showing the the sort of complex versions or the complexities of black lives are are works that I see sort of in direct conversation with us. So that's why Gordon Parks in particular was someone who I, uh, who's someone whose photographs I, I looked at a lot as I was writing this book. Uh, Patricia Smith was someone that I returned to, Nate Marshall. Um, I think those were probably the three main influences that I, I was sort of in when I was actively writing the book and thinking about the book for sure. Um, but, but that's how I see the book kind of interacting with, with other sort of artistic lineages. Maybe some of what you're describing, I'm trying to think of a good way to put this. It seems like other places in America are simply easier to describe um, in a succinct way or even um, Mm. like that Chicago in some way defies singular description, like insists on complexity, that there is like an admirable. I'm looking for a word that's not like unruliness or like, I don't know, like something untidy. And uncontainable. I like unruliness, though. I I do think there is something unruly about it. Um, I mean, there's there's so many moving parts of it, you know. For one, um, and and those parts can be so different <laughs> from you know one from the other. And so I I think there is something about it that resists 
easy categorization, although that's what we're always trying to do to it, right? We're always trying to put it in these categories and trying to label it. Um, and I, I think there's something very petulant about Chicago in that way and that it, it kind of fights against that categorization. And I, and I definitely want to, wanted to honor that, I think, in the book, the ways that it, it fights back. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about like, I don't know, kind of straining against a conventional boundary that might actually succeed in another place or with another literature coming out of a different a different city. And, and you've talked a little bit about um, how outsiders talk about Chicago. And you mentioned we, we mentioned um, your poem, uh, You from Chirac, which has uh, an epigraph from Carl Sandburg's poem, the one that, that Whitney mentioned earlier. And I wonder if you would read that poem for us, because it really takes on that, the way that outsiders talk about Chicago in a particular way that I love. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is you from Chirac and the epigraph reads, and they tell you, and they tell me you are crooked. And I answer, yes, it is true. I have seen the gunman kill and go free to kill again from Carl Sandburg's. I say I'm from Chicago and folks get excited. I mean, they light up like they got gossip to tell. But really, they think they got me figured all the way out. They say, you from Chirac? Once a follow-up, are you a gangster? As he extended a crooked hand, pointed his finger gun at my face and curled his thumb for the airsoft trigger. I stared down the barrel of his hand, gave the answer I'm sure he wanted to hear, said, yes, I'm a hard ass, don't fuck with me, and it was a lie, I know. But so is everything else he believes to be true about me in the South Side. And yeah, I almost held a bullet in my hands, have taken cover among broken glass. I've seen kids' bicycles whizzing down the block as the streetlights came on. I've even seen a gunman double-fisting clocks on my street, but he ain't killed nobody. I had friends on that block and a boy who nicknamed me every time he would go past my building. My happiness was free. Or 25 cents when the candy lady came to my street, someone the next person asked, I kill all that noise. It's Chicago, and I'm no gangster. Don't say it again. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. I had a question for you. I do like, I really like that poem. Uh, Spike Lee, a uh, New York filmmaker, not a Chicago filmmaker, made a film called Chirac. I wonder what you thought of it. Oh, <laughs> um, I you know a lot of the a lot of the conversations that I had with friends and family um, were that. I think some, those things are so complicated because you have to be really careful not to kind of reinforce the exact thing that you're trying to um, write mm-hmm. against. Um, and, and I, you know, we, I think all of us had different opinions about the varying degrees of success in, in which he um, sort of executed the mission there. But um, I think for the most part, we were all just kind of in the same area of like, we, we're not sure how, how successful this was we're not just we're not sure how how confident we feel about this representation here but you know you, you win some you lose some 
I get very, you know, defensive when people write about Kansas City who are not from Kansas City and get things wrong, and it makes me angry. So I thought I would ask you about that. And the poem is kind of about that, you know. Um, uh, the other thing that you mentioned earlier in the conversation was the particularity of Chicago's politics. Um, I wonder if you could tell us what you mean by that and also talk a little bit about the new mayor who was recently elected. Um, that race got a lot of national attention and unseated an incumbent, Lori Lightfoot. And maybe you could give us a little bit of the background of how that might reflect the particularity of Chicago politics. What, you know, one thing about the nature of, you know, the, the, the sort of moment we live in today is social media really just transforms um, everything. And I, and, and social media also, I think, teaches us a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's considered um, dangerous, right, in a lot of ways um, by people who don't want us to know a lot of things. But um, the the mayor race and I think for Chicago and just in general, I find it very hard <laughs> to feel optimistic about um, politics a lot of times. Um, I, you know, I do know that um, Brandon Johnson, who is, you know, a former teacher, a union organizer, um, and I know that Chicago Public Schools and, you know, the teachers in, in the Chicago Public School in particular have had um, a particularly rough, you know, last few years with the with the pandemic in particular. And um, I, I think it's a lot of people's hope that his, his past experiences um, can help him speak to those issues and to be more relatable. Um, but I, and this is the new mayor you're talking about. I should have said that in the question. And he was himself a former teacher, I guess. Is that yes, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, and okay. and and so I, I think, I think a lot of people want to be hopeful that those past experiences will will help him to address you know a lot of a lot of the the issues in the education system. Um, but it also was a very close race. Um, I believe he was like one, like it was like 51% to 49. Um, and, and so also, right, you look at things like that. And I think going back to just how divided the city is, and, and you see that sometimes it's really just kind of split down the middle. And so I'm thinking about optimism as well, like how optimistic can one be when you see how close things are and just how many people are often like against your, your best interests. Um, so I think skeptical optimism is probably the the best place to describe um, how I feel um, in, in that regard. And I think just a, an overall <laughs> national, global kind of um, attitude, maybe a lot more skepticism on the national um, regard, for sure. But um, it, it's hard to feel 100% hopeful um, just because... The, the corruption in Chicago has been has been, you know, very long standing and it, it's been it's been a journey. So um, skeptical optimism, I would I would say, is, is, is where we are. <laughs> That's interesting because, I mean, I think that, that that was like a close race. Right. But Lori Lightfoot lost kind of early and then there was a runoff. Mm. So it also is this I mean, I, I totally see that that um, I happened to be visiting Chicago at a moment when there was some campaigning going on and so ended up reading a little bit more mm -hmm. about it than I maybe normally would have. And then I saw when I went back to look later, I'm like, oh, what happened there? Um, the <laughs> national media, like kind of as you're discussing, right, has there are some stories that frame this as like 
maybe there is hope for progressive na- na- progressives nationwide. Um, Brandon Johnson right. was elected in Chicago. Like again, that sort of like is Chicago the the weather vane for the nation? Um, mm-hmm. Like can we can we how much how much optimism can we read into there? So it's it's a helpful tempering of my own expectations to hear that you're you're like maybe a little bit more on the skeptical side. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, you. These days uh, are in Cincinnati, and you included a Cincinnati poem in your collection, which is called To the City I Wish to Get to Know, and it's close to the end of the book, and you have a second full-length collection of poems coming out in 2025, and I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that project and if it connects to your new home. Oh, yeah. Um, The second project, uh, Resting Bitch Face, which I'm very excited about, it doesn't necessarily um, center Cincinnati um, or or really any particular place. It, it's definitely less less place focused. Um, that project is this exploration of of kind of what it's like to construct um, a, a black female subjectivity in a world in which you are constantly being watched and and in which the lens that you're constantly being watched is often the lens of, of the white patriarchy. Um, and so that book looks a lot at um, art in particular. Um, there's a, um, some looks at some film, right? Looking at all of these ways that we're kind of like consuming media and society and, and how those narratives and art and film, et cetera, um, kind of shape how we, how we then see one another. Um, so yeah, it's it's um I have a lot of ekphrastic poems in there talking a lot about um some of our some some of our artists who were actually like maybe terrible people in real life. <laughs> um and um it it uses I think those outside inspirations, those those art and film pieces to then explore like personal moments of of violation and then there's, there's like a narrative arc of moving from being kind of like a detached watcher um, to then kind of stepping back into the self and then developing a voice that kind of speaks back to the to the violation and the watching that's happening so um, that's kind of that project um, the title which um, I, I think is hilarious and is, is probably my favorite so far um, was inspired by the, a poem in that collection called resting bitch face which thinks which was inspired by the fact that during the pandemic you know, I was wearing masks, we were wearing masks all the time. And I realized that people or men in particular had stopped asking me to smile because they couldn't see my, my mouth or like my full face anymore. And um, so I, I love that that is kind of at the foundation of, of that poem. And then as a result, the title of the book, which I think kind of sums up the, I think the feeling of the book, if there is one. It is a great title. Also, um, I was working on, I was working on my questions for you last night with and um, one of my stepkids was sitting next to me and was like, the poetry collection's called what? Um, <laughs> immediately, immediate intrigue, immediate intrigue. Um, yes. Yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm very excited to read this book. Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and listeners, we encourage you to go out and pick up Taylor's collection. I done clicked my heels three times. And be on the lookout for this next collection, Resting Bitch Face, which will be out in 2025. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating 
and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!